Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jarkas in Dubai. And we begin in Ukraine, where Russian forces now control about 70% of the key eastern city of Severodonetsk. And that's according to one Ukrainian official who said some of his troops have retreated. He says evacuations have been suspended and it's become impossible to import humanitarian aid. A thick orange-colored cloud was visible over the city following an explosion involving a chemical tank Tuesday. Local militia claimed the cloud contained nitric acid and blamed Ukrainian forces. Now, the Kremlin is accusing the United States of adding fuel to the fire by supplying weaponry to Ukraine. President Biden has agreed to provide Kyiv with more advanced missile systems. In a New York Times uh, op-ed, the president wrote, the goal is to see, quote, a democratic, independent, sovereign and prosperous Ukraine with the means to deter and defend itself against further aggression. Now, President Zelensky says every day Ukraine is losing about 60 to 100 soldiers in combat. In an interview, he said the situation in the east is very difficult and Russia's blockades of shipments in the Black Sea means the country is facing a food crisis. CNN correspondent Melissa Bell is in Zaporizhia for us. Uh, Melissa, great to see you. I want to start off with what we see in Severodonetsk. And we know the Ukrainians are saying that 70 percent of the city is now under Russian control. What do we know at this minute about evacuations and importantly, what the Ukrainians are planning in terms of counteroffensive? Well, of course, it is It is the plight of those 15,000 civilians still believed to be inside the city that is uh, utmost on the minds of everyone as those uh, Russian advances are made. And uh, just to give you an idea of that part of uh, the region, the military advantage that the forces have at this stage is such that if Severodonetsk falls, uh, the only town in Luhansk that will remain, a uh, sizable city that will remain in the hands of Ukraine will be Lysychansk. And that is important, of course, strategically, if you look at a map of that region. And that is why the battle for Severodonetsk has been as fierce as it has these last few days. Uh, but to your question, Eleni, it is because that battle is particularly fierce in the north that we believe uh, Ukrainian forces are focusing now on the counteroffensive uh, in the south of uh, Ukraine. So uh, here I'm speaking to you from Zaporizhia, which is uh, roughly uh, halfway uh, down that line that separates Russian-controlled Ukraine today from the rest of the country. And if you look at that map, Severodonetsk is that very northern tip. Uh, Kherson is at that very southern tip. And what's been happening over the course of the last few days is Ukrainian armed forces really focusing on trying to get back that town of Kherson. It matters strategically. Uh, because it is the only point west of the Dnieper River that is currently in Russian hands. Uh, And of course, by focusing their firepower on that, 
Ukrainian forces believe that they can make a difference to the overall battle that's being fought. Now, uh, that, of course, continues to be fought here. Uh, from where I'm standing at 30, we've been hearing the sirens over the course of the night. It is the villages that are 30 kilometers, 60 kilometers southeast of here that have been being shelled again overnight. And I think that is one of the reasons uh, that Ukrainians are very relieved to hear of the news that uh, President Biden is going to uh, go down the route of uh, allowing some of those weapons that they've been calling for to be uh, given at last. Because it is towns like this, Zaporizhia, where you've been feeling the pressure of that Russian advance. And remember that uh, the weapons that Russia has in its hands, which are uh, not just the artillery that have allowed it to, with such devastating effect, to take control of uh, so much of uh, southern and eastern Ukraine over the course of the last few weeks, but itself has those longer range rocket systems that Ukrainian forces have been asking for and that it believes will make a big difference to protecting towns like Zaporizhia. Absolutely. And Melissa, look, the Ukrainians have been very vocal about the fact that there's a big possibility they'll lose the war, particularly in the east, if they don't get long range missiles. Now, the president a few days ago said no missiles that can actually reach Russia, but now saying heavy weaponry that will assist the Ukrainians. Do we have any more detail about what this weaponry is and what these missiles can actually do? We do because of the opinion piece that President Biden has in the New York Times today. And I think it's significant that Moscow had made plain that a red line, as far as it was concerned, was the kind of weaponry, those long range rocket systems uh, that could reach uh, up to 300 miles and that could threaten Russia. It had made clear that if those weapons found themselves in Ukrainian hands, uh, that would be a red line for Moscow. So I think what we understand from the type of weaponry that Washington has now made plain, it is willing to give Ukrainians that we're talking about, uh, first of all, uh, rocket systems that have a range of about uh, 40 miles or so, 50 miles or so, no more than that. So precisely the kind of range that would make a difference in towns like Zaporizhia, also the kind of munitions uh, that would make a difference. And bear in mind that it isn't that Ukrainians don't have any of these long range rocket systems. It's simply that the kind they have are out of date. So we're talking about range, but we're also talking about the ability of these systems uh, to be to have that modern capacity, not just of the rocket systems themselves, but the munitions that Washington has been providing and says it will continue to provide uh, to to guide themselves to their targets. So it is about the range. It is about the modernity, the the high tech quality of the weaponry that Washington says it is now willing to give. Melissa Bell, always good to speak to you. Thank you so much uh, for that context. Now, two more European energy firms have been cut off from Russia natural gas supplies after refusing to pay for gas in rubles. Denmark's Ørsted says Gazprom will halt Russian gas supply stock. Cut off. Now, Claire Sebastian is standing by for us. Uh, and uh, she's going to be giving me more details on that. Sorry, we had a bit of technical issues there, but I can see you now, Claire. Um, the list of companies that are cut off from Russian gas is growing. I want you to tell me about the latest. And of course, their reservations of not wanting to pay in rubles. Yeah, Eleni, that's what this all boils down to. There are now six energy companies in six different countries in Europe that have said they are not going to comply 
with Moscow's request uh, and pay for their uh, gas using rubles and using this complex mechanism uh, that, that Russia is now enforcing. And as a result, they have now all been cut off. Now, we've been looking at some of the quantities at play here. In terms of the individual companies, it's relatively small. Uh, you can see sort of one cubic, uh, one billion cubic meters a year, various different small amounts. But if you add them all together, it's not insignificant. They're taken together. It's about 19.56 billion cubic meters. Uh, that's about 12 and a half percent of what the EU imported from Russia last year. So you can see that's not insignificant. I think the question is, how is this now affecting Russia? Well, we heard today from Gazprom. They said that their exports in the first five months of this year dropped by 27.6%. That would suggest that the cuts are coming from both sides, that Gazprom is cutting off these companies and that there are European countries and other customers who are also cutting back. We know that the likes of Japan of Germany, for example, has reduced its imports of Russian gas from about 55% of its total down to 35% since the start of the conflict. So at the same time, while its exports are down 27.6%, Gazprom is, is only producing 4.8% less. So I think the question going forward as to how this is going to affect Russia is can they find new customers fast enough? And especially, can they ramp up to existing customers like China and the rest of Asia? I think the answer to that is, yes, they can ramp up slowly, but they're not going to be able to fill the gap particularly quickly, and there is going to be a shortfall. Yeah. Changing landscape on supply and demand. Thank you so much, Clay Sebastian. All right, so now the war in Ukraine is just one of a number of factors pushing global inflation to highs not seen in decades. U.S. President Joe Biden met with Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Tuesday and offered his full support to the Fed's goal of raising rates to help cool down prices. But there is growing criticism that U.S. leaders underestimated the inflation threat for too long. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted as much to CNN yesterday. Listen in. Well, um, look, I, I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time didn't fully understand. Rahel Solomon joins me now. Uh, Rahel, always good to see you. Look, it's always difficult to forecast. Um, and over that time when Janet Yellen, you know, was looking at what inflation would do, there was major pushback on hiking rates. There was a big fear of derailing growth. Um, and it was always a gamble in terms of the inflation outlook. Uh, where do we stand right now to try and pull that back? Well, Eleni, as you know, there's always a bit of gamble when it comes to forecasting a monetary policy. But the message from the White House that we had heard was very clear, and we heard it quite a bit over the last year, that inflation should be transitory. Take a listen. I don't anticipate that inflation is going to be a problem, but it is something that we're watching very carefully. I really do not expect that we'll be in a situation where Inflation rises to trouble, troubling levels. Some folks have raised worries that this could be a sign of persistent inflation. But that's not our view. Our experts believe, and the data shows, that most of the price increases we've seen are, were expected and are expected to be temporary. 
Now, to be fair, what we heard from those officials was the consensus of many economists at the time. That said that there, there were pretty vocal critics sounding the alarm that, hey, this might not actually be transitory. Maybe you should take your foot off the accelerator. Uh, you can point to Mohamed el a very prominent economist. You can point to uh, Larry Summers, a very prominent economist, who had warned repeatedly that inflation might be a persistent problem. And as we have seen, it has played out. So look, we spoke to Larry Summers uh, this morning on CNN's New Day program about Yellen's admission and also what to do now. I think we need to be very careful to make sure that if we have a few good months on inflation that are better and a few months when the economy looks a little bit weaker, that we don't uh, ease monetary policy or stop tightening it uh, too rapidly. He also used the example, Eleni, that, you know, when you're sick and you start taking an antibiotic, the temptation maybe is to stop taking it as soon as you feel better because you think, you know, I'm all good. He said, look, that would be a mistake in this situation. The Fed has said that they are going to act swiftly. And so stay the course here, continue to raise rates uh, until inflation is reined in uh, and under control. Absolutely. You've got to be proactive with monetary policy, um, but it's a tough one when everyone's addicted to the stimulus. Uh, Rahel Solomon, really good to see you. Thank you so much. All right, let's move on to Shanghai, where millions of residents are celebrating the easing of COVID restrictions. After a two-month lockdown, most people are once again allowed outside. Shops have reopened and transportation services are up and running. But the city says it will still enforce some restrictions. CNN's Selena Wang is in Beijing with more. And uh, I have to say, seeing some of the videos, Selena, of people bursting out of lockdown is pretty phenomenal. I guess the question is, is this really back to normal now or does it come with some caveats? Well, most of Shanghai's 25 million residents, they can for the first time now walk outside, drive their cars, go into shops and stores, the ones that are open. But still, there are more than half a million people that are still stuck under lockdown because there have been COVID cases in their community. And for some people, this freedom is going to be short-lived because if another new COVID case is found, it is going to be back into lockdown. So that feeling in Shanghai, it's a mixture of both anxiety, joy, relief, as you saw in those celebrations in the streets, but also disbelief because the direction from the government has been so haphazard that they're actually surprised that they're actually able to move around so freely. Because as you'll see in this upcoming story, the days leading up to this bigger reopening have been chaotic. Sprinting with shopping bags, residents racing to get out. After more than two months of a brutal citywide lockdown, Shanghai is finally cracking open the seal. The city's main train station packed with people trying to escape, but actually getting out of here is a treacherous journey. The city says it will fully resume transportation today. But earlier, people have been seen trekking miles across highways, dragging their luggage or strapping it to bikes. Even journeys of dozens of miles or more not swaying their determination. The train station parking lot has become a campsite, some leaving days earlier than their departure time, terrified they could be locked down again if they stay at home. The masses outside the train station, a stark contrast to the rest of Shanghai. Hundreds of thousands still remain locked in. But even the lucky ones allowed out face a laundry list of restrictions. 
There are checkpoints everywhere. No, this is definitely not freedom. This Shanghai resident and her son, who wished to remain anonymous for fear of persecution from authorities, were finally allowed out after more than 80 days. Her only solace is seeing her son outside and smiling for the first time in a long time. My child now has depression、um, because of the lockdown. He started waking up. At night and crying and shouting and saying there were people wearing masks in his bedroom, and he stopped eating. That harsh reality, miles away from what the government wants to show. Watch this state TV reporter pull the microphone and camera away during a live interview when the resident starts to complain about the lockdown. She says. I've never lived through anything like this: being locked inside your home and not allowed to go out. What a big joke! Officials say the city will start returning to normal in June, but residents are doubtful. So this does feel like endless, endless nightmare. Her freedom lasted less than a week. One COVID case was found near her, so she's back to lockdown. For over two months, Shanghai has had its freedom taken away. Residents imprisoned at home or forced into quarantine centers like these. No one knows when this nightmare will fully end. Eleni, I've got a TV right next to me here in Beijing, and the entirety of that report, and actually what I'm saying currently right now, is being censored here in China. Worth pointing out that after the Wuhan lockdown was lifted after the initial outbreak in 2020, the government hailed it as this heroic victory. In response to Shanghai exiting this two-month lockdown, well, it's been a lot more subdued. In fact, the government is even refusing to admit that this was a lockdown at all. In fact, they're calling it quote static management. In a widely circulated notice online that was reportedly sent to media organizations in China, the government asked these media organizations here not to use the words "lifting lockdown," and that is fueling frustration among many residents who are saying, "Well, we shouldn't exactly be joyous here because the authorities—they are not recognizing our suffering. They are not apologizing to us that everything they went through, the loss of their freedom, the threat of being sent to quarantine facilities in poor conditions, the heartbreaking story." Of people, some of them who died because they were turned away from hospitals, who were emergency patients because of COVID protocols, the countless, countless heartbreaking stories that there has not actually been acknowledgement of it from officials, Eleni. So there is joy, anxiety, heartbreak, relief—a really、yeah. big mix of emotions here as the city finally starts to exit that lockdown. Yeah, Selina, thank you so very much、uh, for that update. Good to see you. Now, straight ahead. It's a brand new trading month, but the same problems are still rattling investors around the world. A look at markets is up next. Stay with CNN. Welcome back. U.S. stock futures are moving higher after a soft. Start to the trading week on Tuesday. European shares are mostly higher as well. You can see the Dow Jones、uh, six tenths of a percent, and over in Europe, in the green as well. My investors are kicking off a brand new trading month filled with the same old concerns, including the ongoing war in Ukraine and how it is helping fuel inflation worldwide. 
Both Brent and U.S. crude are currently up about 1.5% as investors react not only to Europe's partial oil ban on Russia, but also the easing of COVID lockdowns in China and what that would mean for demand. Now, oil's gain may continue to be consumers' pain. U.S. gas prices jumping to fresh record highs once again today. All this is a prime concern for the U.S. Federal Reserve as it gets to raise interest rates again later this month. We've got Jeff Kleintop joining us. Uh, he is the Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jeff. Really good to see you. I mean, look, maybe the Federal Reserve is slightly late to the party in terms of hiking rates. The question is, can they rein it in? When you're seeing what that oil price is doing right now, supply-demand dynamics still very much in flux, and the U.S. consumer already feeling the pain. Well, that's that's the key is how much pain is the consumer feeling? Demand still remains pretty solid, but what we're seeing is retailers are dealing with excess inventories, right? That was a recent problem here with companies like Walmart and Kohl's and Target and others talking about unwanted inventory levels. We've gone fairly rapidly from shortages to gluts in a number of categories. And that's an indication that businesses may soon need to cut prices in order to attract buyers. And that can lead to a more rapid decline in inflation than many are expecting. And that might lead the Fed to maybe not be as aggressive as we look out, not to the summer, but maybe beyond, maybe beyond the September rate hike into the latter part of this year, perhaps the Fed has the opportunity to slow or pause their pace of rate hikes in the face of weakening consumer demand at that point and price cuts by retailers. Okay, so you've said that stocks, bonds and cash are either in in a bear market or teetering on bear market territory, an event that we don't normally see, we haven't seen for decades. Um, What do you do in this type of scenario? Are you seeing opportunities or do you think it's pointing towards a, a very deep recessionary environment, one that's very difficult to get out of? These periods of the three bears, meaning a bear in the stock market, the bond market, and even on inflation-adjusted basis, the cash market, uh, are very rare. They only happen a couple other times in the 1970s, and they were usually right around the peak in inflation pressure, so right as inflation was at its worst. And that suggests that maybe they're somewhat limited here in duration and that there may be some opportunities emerging. One of the areas that we're interested in are, are financials, particularly those in Europe, an area of opportunity here. They've, they've, they're relatively attractive on a valuation basis, but importantly here, as the European Central Bank begins to embrace rate hikes, actually a positive for European financials as it improves their profitability. And these stocks are beginning to lead the market along with the energy sector. This is in contrast to what we're seeing in the U.S. where rate hikes are being viewed with caution and concern. In Europe, they might be welcome news for the earnings of financial uh, financial stocks, making up the bulk of, uh, of European equities, the biggest sector over there. And that's one of the reasons why European stocks are outperforming U.S. stocks, something that could continue in the latter part of this year. Yeah, it's an interesting play there. Um, you know, I have to say that when we do see this type of inflationary scenario coming through, and you mentioned the early 1970s, that's when we saw, you know, complete commodity price shock. And it was followed by a recovery, you know, a couple of years after that. If you're in the commodities business right now, just smiling all the way to the bank, do you think that we'll see a shock, demand destruction, and then a quick reversion back to good times? I think the not necessarily. Uh, I, we're in an environment where 
Uh, we've got different parts of the world economy out of sync with each other, which is maybe somewhat rare relative to what we've seen recently. But China is now trying to stimulate its economy and might be beginning to emerge from these uh, recent lockdowns. And if that's true, then commodity demand may pick up. Remember, copper inventories in China are very low. So as they begin to pick up, perhaps we see commodity prices begin to find their footing here soon as concerns about global economic slowdown uh, are offset by a, a op op optimistic take, perhaps, that China begins to reaccelerate growth. So I think we're in this environment where it's very difficult to foresee what the demand picture might even out to be in the latter part of this year for commodities. We believe those prices may remain elevated through the latter part of this year. When we, when you heard Janet Yellen saying, look, she was wrong in terms of her inflation outlook, where, which camp were you in at the time? Don't pull back on stimulus because we're, you know, we're really enjoying the, the cheap money here, or do we need to worry about inflation? Well, I, I think inflation, the degree to which inflation rebounded caught us all by surprise. It certainly surprised on the upside, might surprise on the downside over the next 12 months if we're lucky. But I think that, uh, it, you know, the combination of factors, the war in Ukraine breaking out, the additional supply chain challenges that we faced earlier this year, all of them uh, because of uh, because of the COVID lockdowns that took place, not, not entirely foreseeable. So I think we've had a combination of uh, unfortunate events that have prompted a further price increase. But now I think it's safe to say that prices are likely to be peaking, barring an additional major global shock. And we're likely to see them recede a little bit, again, moving this from this shortage to glut environment we're in. And that raises risks for some companies. I know we all like to see inflation come down a little bit, but there are a number of companies that have ridden these pricing power gains that may be still vulnerable, like the semiconductor sector. We're starting to see gluts begin to emerge in some segments of semiconductors. Could be more downside there. Jeff, really good to see you. Thank you so very much for that analysis. That was Jeff Kleintop, uh, the Chief Thank Global you. Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. All right, so coming up after the break, with no end in sight for the war, how a Ukrainian pet product company is helping the country in the difficult battle against Russia. That story is coming up next. Welcome back. U.S. stocks are now up and running on this first trading day of the month. And as expected, we've got a higher open across the board. The Dow Jones up seven-tenths of a percent. Investors hoping for a bit of less volatility this month after a May that saw the S&P 500 briefly dip into bear market territory. Market tests will be coming fast and furious over the next few days. The U.S. released its latest reading on U.S. jobs Friday. Crucial new inflation numbers will also be released next week. Now back to our top story. The war in Ukraine in the Russian-occupied city of Melitopol. Ordinary Ukrainians are finding their own ways to express their defiance to Moscow. Melissa Bell has the story. An explosion in the southern Ukrainian city of Melitopol. Blamed by Moscow on Ukrainian resistors. And on Sunday, Melitopol is Ukraine, chanted in the heart of a town that's been in Russian hands for nearly three months. Yellow ribbons more defiantly displayed than elsewhere in Russian-held southern Ukraine. From Crimea to Kherson, symbols of silent resistance. But Melitopol's noisily resisted from the start. 
after the early chants of its people were silenced and when the town's mayor was kidnapped by Russian forces in early March, some locals turned to armed resistance. It was uh, a very dangerous situation. Now in Ukrainian government-held Zaporizhia, Ivan Fedorov says Melitopol will never give up. They can kidnap, they can kill, they can't uh, make some truth, but we, we can't give support because our citizens don't want to live in Russia. I know it. Melitopol will return to Ukraine. Melitopol fell quickly, and even as Russian forces pulled back to the south and east of the country, remained on the wrong side of a line that has hardened. Russia is using hybrid methods of occupation. That means the Russian Federation is trying to identify and destroy centers of resistance, Ukrainian partisans. Such people are often uncovered and will sometimes disappear in Russian prisons. Idea of the yellow ribbon was, which is why the yellow ribbon movement has become key, according to its spokesman in Kyiv. He tells me the ribbons allow people to pass on the message that Ukraine is present here, that there is no other south than under the Ukrainian flag. Here in Zaporizhia, there's also a sense that that line between Russian-controlled Ukraine and the rest of the country is hardening even as it continues to move forward. We can hear here the regular sound of outgoing artillery fire, but we can also see an emerging refugee crisis. Hundreds of families living in their cars as they try to get back to their homes, now in Russian-controlled cities. Melissa Bell, CNN, Zaporizhia. And speaking of resistance, one of the Ukrainian businesses supporting the war effort is PetCube, a company that makes products connecting owners to their pets remotely. Many of the employees are helping the government, including some joining the IT army, taking directions from the Ministry of Information to fight Russia. Joining us now is Yaroslav Azinyuk. He's the CEO and co-founder of PetCube. Uh, Yaroslav, great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it, it is incredible because I, I know your story, right? You, it's, it, you're this incredible company that has you know, operations and selling products in various parts of the world, but you're Ukrainian made, which is really special. Um, I know that you have a team there. Tell me about their experiences and how you've been able to get to places of safety. Absolutely, Eleni, thanks for having me. So yes, PetCube is designed by Ukrainians and made in Ukraine, and uh, we've sold over a half a million devices to American families. Uh, and the team is still here, and I am personally now in Lviv in Western Ukraine. Uh, and obviously many people had to evacuate from their homes to uh, safer places in the country. But as much as everyone continues uh, to do their best job uh, for the company, everyone is also volunteering. So the volunteering movement inside of our company, but also in hundreds of other Ukrainian companies that are shipping goods and services to the U.S. and to the world is just incredible. Some examples of what people do outside of just donations, uh, you know, people um, working with the different business counterparts around the world to explain the situation, to urge people to stop doing business with uh, Russia, uh, impose sanctions, even outside of government imposed sanctions. And obviously, since those are engineers and IT people, many of them are involved with 
more sophisticated things like um, attacking some of the Russian infrastructure through IT means or producing drones and other services. So I wouldn't say any particular people on our team is doing this, but I know many teams that are working on similar things. You know, you've also described um, the experience of some of your employees that have had to leave um, very delicate situations. Um, tell me how your team are doing right now and whether they're all in places of safety at the moment or are you concerned? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Uh, well, um, majority of the team uh, pre-war were in Kiev and some in Odessa and some central Ukrainian cities. So basically the the first day of war, we had evacuation plans that were individual and most people have followed them. Some chose to stay, but they, they were in relative safety. But again, this is all relative. What is sort of safe for Ukrainian and you know, people live in cities where they can hear an uh, air siren uh, once or twice a week, and they need to go to a bomb shelter, and that is considered to be fine and safe. You know, that would be unthinkable for any city in the U.S. Right? I lived in San Francisco for six years. It's it's really hard to imagine. But say people in Israel, they sort of also used to such situations. So. People are more or less safe uh, within our company, which cannot be told, obviously, about people in the eastern Ukrainian cities and people who did not have a chance to evacuate and they're really in a in a dire situation. And that's why, yeah. you know, the whole free world is, is scrambling for weapons and so on. Yaroslav, I, 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 want to, I want to also get a sense because we, we haven't really spoken about sort of the impact, the real impact on Ukrainian businesses. Are you guys still operational? Can you give me a sense of what's going on in terms of industry and what it's like right now? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, actually, uh, many Ukrainian businesses remain operational, especially those that were targeting uh, kind of Western markets. And uh, in PetCube, we actually put together a website that is called spendwithukraine.com and that lists over a hundred of different Ukrainian businesses, services, products that are available for uh, global consumers. And that's yet another way to support Ukraine and people of Ukraine. Just go to that website and choose whatever you like and buy from Ukrainian businesses and help create jobs. You know, it's not only about donations or yeah. kind of public advocacy. And those are some amazing businesses, I can tell you, uh, especially in things like lifestyle, kind of furniture and fashion and obviously technology products like pet cubes or we also have this company called Delfast Bikes that makes world's fastest electric bikes and they uh, also have an office in LA. So a number of companies you would be surprised and some of them I'm sure our listeners are using every day uh, say pro product like Grammarly that corrects your grammar when you're typing on your computer. So many of those companies have Ukrainian roots and have large Ukrainian offices. They are relocating, they're working just fine and creating uh, workplace uh, workplaces in Ukraine. Yeah. Yaroslav, thank you so very much. We forget life must go on even uh, during times of war. Thank you so much. I wish you and your team all the best. Much appreciated. All right. Thanks for having me. Now, many football fans around the world awaiting an emotional match today. Ukraine will face off against Scotland and Glasgow in a delayed Men's World Cup qualifier. The winner will go on to play against Wales on Sunday with a spot in Qatar.
on the line. Alex Thomas, welcome. You're in Glasgow. Give us a preview. Yeah, Ukraine's players have been in Slovenia for the last month, training for this World Cup qualifier, delayed from earlier in the year because of the breakout of war in their home country. And it was clear to the footballers that trying to focus on your occupation when it's just a game, while there's so much death and destruction going on in your home country, is very difficult. And we saw a perfect illustration of that when star player Manchester City's Alexander Zinchenko broke down in tears during the pre-match press conference. Take a look. He was actually applauded out of the press conference on Tuesday by journalists who never normally do that because we're all human. We understand what they're going through. So do the Scotland players as well. So there will certainly be some mixed emotions amongst players and fans who want to see the Scottish team get through to the next stage of the playoffs, possibly beat Wales and reach the World Cup later this year. But someone like Graham Souness, a Scottish legend who used to play for the national team and for Liverpool, said he almost wants Ukraine to win. Uh, such is the tug of emotions over a football game that's certainly wider than just the sport itself, Yeleni. And it'll be interesting to see what happens later. A sellout crowd here, maybe around 2,000 Ukrainians yeah. over for this game as well. And it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. Back to you. Yeah, definitely an emotional game. Alex Thomas, really good to see you. Thank you so much. And that's it for the show. And thank you for joining us today. Marketplace Asia is up next. From me, Eleni Jokas, take care. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.